From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the call-in number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. 2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. And uh, Michael McCall and Ace McKay doubling up on your social media efforts for this hour. And uh, our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Uh, pretty good, Jack. You know, Colin, um, as you look throughout the, the history of the church and you look at the, the religious orders, even the, the lay communities, the diocesan communities, and there is oftentimes a particular leaning or emphasis on one aspect of theology as you move from mm-hmm. a Dominican to a... You know, even within an order like the Franciscans, between the Discalced Carmelites, the Carmelites, the Third Order Franciscans, things like that. But one common thread theologically that seems to weave throughout all of the church is the deference and respect given to the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast day we celebrate tomorrow. And I'm sure that you have more than a couple thoughts on (laughs) the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. Well, uh... It's noted, I think, that Pope Pius V at the Council of Trent had on the on the papal altar at the opening mass both the Gospels and the Summa Theologica. Uh, already by this point, of course, uh, Saint Thomas had been declared a saint and had been recognized as the foremost uh, theologian in in the Church, and certainly of his time and likely of all of all church history for systematizing, uh, yes, with, with the insights which his own intellect provided, but taking the whole deposit of the faith, the, the, the theology of the fathers, whom he cites liberally in, his, in the Summa, or the philosophy of Aristotle uh, to, in order to gain um, reasoned insight into how something uh, might might be in a particular way. And he brings, synthesizes those together. And there has never been, of course, an individual who has, who has done that so completely as St. Thomas. And so he's the touchstone of theology. Uh, you never go wrong uh, de- deferring to his theological perspective. That's different than saying that everything he teaches necessarily is church teaching 
or even the right solution to the problem. And, of course, people very often talk about the Franciscans uh, were already uh, in favor of the Immaculate Conception well before the Thomas were because uh, philosophy gave a particular perspective on when insolment was and, you know, dickering around with, well, is it at animation? Is it at the very beginning? They couldn't get to the conclusion, and Thomas didn't either, or the Immaculate Conception, whereas the Franciscans did. Uh, but notwithstanding those examples and, and the limitations of theology in general, remembering that as Catholics we're obliged to what the Church teaches. Theology is faith-seeking understanding. And when understood that way, it provides a great impetus and strengthening to the, to the faith and to the argumentations in favor of the faith. It is not the faith, however, and that always has to be remembered. Hence, the different schools with the different emphases are an accepted part of Catholic theology. You know, with the Franciscans, with uh, their perspective. Uh, the Carmelites, of course, greatly influenced by Ter- Ter- St. Teresa and John of the Cross. John of the Cross theology, of course, very much founded in the spiritual theology of, uh, of Aquinas, so you're going to get a lot of Aquinas there. But those different perspectives are something that the Church celebrates, because in a different way, out of all of this will come the insights which will may make it into a formal Church teaching in the future. And the Church will take all that is good and discern from that uh, that which is the chaff. You know, when men are in formation, even to this day, and this is, I guess, this is this has varied some down through the millennia, but uh, you know, they are required to study philosophy mm-hmm. before they study theology. Talk about the importance of philosophy in developing an accurate theology. Well, philosophy gives you a reasoned mind so that you can think logically and in the proper categories about nature and being and, uh, and realities in general. Uh, the, the lo- there's the, lo- the logical area or area which is specifically about coming to logical conclusions, starting with other things, with the data, with the premises, hypotheses, and it's that which gives makes theology a science, as it were, because this is what Aquinas did. He sorted through the data, the data of the Scripture, obviously, and what the Church had taught, and, and so on. So philosophy is a great aid, and it's been referred to as the handmaid of theology. And it has been the tradition of the Church. Now, I remember in the 70s and, and, and 80s, uh, there were a lot of places, seminaries that were going to the reverse, that it was better to study theology first and then the philosophy. How'd that work out? That did not work out too well, and we've seen certain uh, of the fruits in that. Uh, And in that particular example, uh, you know, that particular case, I was always very grateful for, for the education I received at the Seminary of Christ the King at Westminster Abbey in British Columbia. Uh, because we had particularly one professor who was the, the rector at the time and also taught philosophy, Father Augustine, that when uh, somebody had some confused idea that he wanted to talk about, that would be aware of it, he would, we might spend a few days talking about that, and then he would say in moral theology or in philosophy, well, now let's go back and see what St. Thomas says about it. Because he was always where you went back as the touchstone on these kinds of questions. Uh, so it's possible to 
to understand theology better if one understands the traditional metaphysical and anthropological categories. And what's interesting is when Pope John Paul, in his writings, both as a priest, a bishop, a cardinal, and pope, talks about integrating personalism with the, the theology of the church, he says it cannot be done without the willingness to defer to metaphysics and anthropology, and basically to mystic metaphysics and to mystic anthropology. You can talk about things like conscience, about subjective things, about phenomenological things, about empirical, empirical things in sociology and psychology, but you can't understand them, correct them, and reconcile them with the church's teaching unless your, your foundation, which you're of reference, is a legitimate metaphysics and anthropology such as St. Thomas taught, such as the church generally has taught down through the ages. And that's why it's important. When you get to theology and are faced with the questions, you need to have the tools available to make the right discernment. Otherwise, you're going to be led wherever, you know, wherever the professor wants to lead you in theology. And some of those areas have simply proven not to be fruitful and sometimes even heterodox. You know, it's really a blessing the way, you know, many things in, in creation are certainly a blessing, but it's really a blessing to us the way that God has created us allows for the opportunity for Thomas to live beyond the 13th century because his writings in the hearts and minds of people like Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II really allow him to speak today. Yeah. You know, this is, I, I, I probably don't have the exact words right, but you probably do. Chesterton basically had on a quote on this that really, in all, we're not voting today on, to put it in my, my language, on theological questions, we're not deciding today as if an opinion poll can decide those things. Because if you wish to take in the a consensus of the church, you've got to include the apostles, the fathers, the, the doctors, the popes, and the people of today as well. In other words, the tradition is what is the historical consensus of the Catholic Church. To depart from the tradition, therefore, is to make oneself in a very egotistical fashion or one's time the sole touchstone of that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Church Pop takes a fresh look and a fun look at the new Shaping Our World, featuring engaging, inspiring, and informative Catholic social media content. You can find it on Snapchat, Instagram, and on the web at churchpop.com. And you can get Church Pop directly to your email inbox. I get an email from them every morning. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Got a couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Jeff, a first-time caller in the great state of Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Jeff, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Jonathan, uh, praying the uh, Lord of St. Patrick, mm-hmm. and uh, it seems like I did not. I'm appropriating the uh, the strength of the strongest of the saints for my uh, for my life during the day. And I thought I'd get your uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. Um... Yeah, when I saw your question would come up, I pulled it up so I'd have a reference point here. And, yeah, you're saying through the mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, so you're appealing to God, you're appealing to Christ in his mysteries, something which uh, the Church herself does in her liturgical prayers. Um, you are, uh, uh, you're making an act of, uh, uh, of love, or the cherubim, and, and seeking the essentially the help of different categories of individuals, the angels and archangels and so on. So it's an yeah, unusual formation of prayer. It's certainly one that has been popular down through the ages, especially uh, among the Irish. Um, and it's, you know, I, I sort of think in a situation like this, Jack, of the what Christ had to say about the widow who pestered the, uh, who pestered judge. the judge. The magistrate, yep. The magistrate. We're bringing before God the reasons of his honor and the honor of the Blessed Mother and the angels and the saints as to why he should help us. It's a gentle kind of pestering, if you will, but it's very forceful, it's very powerful because it is holding up the truths that we celebrate and the reality of these mysteries and and these historical uh, creatures of God and appealing to God for their protection so it expands, say, we might say the guardian angel prayer, a prayer to the Blessed Mother, prayer to St. Joseph, sort of brings a lot of these uh, together. It's also, uh, I, I see a certain reflection of the, uh, of the Tadeum in here, of uh, not in the giving of thanks, but in the listing of the, uh, listing of the natural realities and so on. And so, again, the creative power of God and all the beautiful things he has done, it's recalling that. So I think that's where power, where power comes from, is we're uniting ourselves to God and we're appealing to him on the basis of, of truths and mysteries that are part of our faith. And in that way, we're trying, yes, we would like something. We're praying for, in the first place, to be faithful, to have that day be successful in our Christian life. Um, and also all the other things in particular to to pilot, uphold, guide, to uh, and so on as as it, the prayer asks for. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate the call today. That frees up a line for you at eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. We head next to Lincoln, Nebraska. Jason is in Lincoln, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. And he has a question that I'm sure all of us have pondered at one time or another. Jason, you are on with Colin Donovan. Colin, hello. Thanks <laughs> hello. for taking my call. Sure. 
Uh, there's a rich tradition of Catholic universities around the world. We've got, you know, some great ones in the United States. Uh, you know, Notre Dame and Creighton come to mind, St. John's, Mark, I believe Marquette University. Uh, we have one in Chicago that's one of the top two biggest uh, Catholic universities, and I'm a big fan of their sports teams, which were once proud on the basketball court, and they've been a little lean in uh, <laughs> recent years. But uh, I always wondered why we have a mascot called the Blue Demons at one of our flagship <laughs> Catholic universities. I wonder if you had any insight whatsoever on that. Well, I, I don't think it's done in reverence of the demons. It's certainly a common expression. You know, a, a blue streak would be one way of saying the same thing. Or, you know, to go very fast, to be like speed like a demon. Demons are instantaneous from wherever they will to be as St. Thomas or St. for tomorrow. Uh, wherever we will to be, that's where you are, where the angel is. So I, I guess it's meant to be intimidating. Um, yeah, I think you might question the use of it, but uh, I don't think it's a pay on a praise for, for demons as such, but sort of a reference maybe to that angelic speed. Uh, maybe I don't know if you could say the Blue Angels. That might be a co- copyrighted name. But <laughs> anyway, that's my take on it. And I guess you'd have to ask the sports department of uh, the university that I think you're speaking of why why they took that. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. We appreciate the phone call. They're not the only ones either. There's Oh, I know. There's a, there's a number of teams. high schools. It, there's, it's, uh, yes. You know, in, in my hometown, St. Louis University, a Jesuit school, has a mascot of the Billikens which is a really... That's sh- strange. I don't even a, get know a, what that it's, is. It's, it's a little gargoyle-looking kind of a oh, okay. thing that there seems to be conflicting stories about the exact origin of the Billiken itself plus the story around how it became the mascot of the universe. Anyway. Well, there there are, gargoyles are on churches. It's yeah, yeah. sort of to, you know, to actually uh, to do the opposite of what you would think it would right. do, to yeah, frighten. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Jefferson writes in, what is the church teaching on immigration? How do we balance love of neighbor with following the law? Well, the the teaching is general. Uh, we should be, I guess you'd say, under the principle of hospitality, which is certainly uh, a subset of charity, we should be ready to help those who are in legitimate need. Countries, on the other hand, have a right in justice to protect the goods of their own citizens and to make laws controlling immigration. Uncontrolling immigration, as we've seen now off and on for a couple of decades, uh, has deleterious effects in communities. Uh, and so it's a legitimate sir, uh, task of government to provide for Uh, On the one hand, uh, for those who have a true need, uh, maybe they're migrating for work or maybe they're running from political oppression or criminal oppression. There may be reasons why they're there. But on the other hand, we do know in the case of our own borders that that can sometimes be uh, driven by criminal enterprises as well. So laws that protect the, the nations of the border as a principle of justice also protects the immigrant, the migrant. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it depends upon the spirit with which the laws are enforced 
and the way they're enforced and so on. And that requires going at them with a true sense of charity to discern the, the worthy from the unworthy, the innocent from the criminal. And I think that's the, the purpose of those laws. But these are general statements. And in the end, it's up to individual governments to determine the particulars of all of that. That's the lay office as opposed to the teaching office of the church. So you definitely have, on the one hand, the, the great good of openness to those who are suffering and poor, the migrants, the you know, those pursued by injustices, uh, and on the other hand, the justice due to the citizens of a country and to the migrants themselves by making sure that that's done in an orderly way. How that's going to be worked, uh, balanced is going to be up to the governments of the individual countries. That's their task, and it should be done, you would hope, with an openness to, uh, to charity and, and the serving of the, of the good uh, of both those in the country already and those who are trying to get in for legitimate uh, reasons. Uh, Xavier writes in, were Adam and Eve fully evolved human beings, or did humans evolve after Adam and Eve? Well, we don't know because the purpose of Genesis is not to tell us the biology of that. Uh, we know that there were two parents, two a male man and woman, who were the ensouled, first ensouled human beings. What before that, if there was anything before that, Scripture is silent on it. Uh, and even Pope Pius Twelfth, in speaking of this in uh, Humani Generis on the origin of, of man, uh, speaks of the legitimate role of science in investigating those questions and the absolute need to defend the proposition that the human being, body and soul, does not derive from only material forces, but by an intervention of God. That's the, that's the nub right there. And God can get to that point and get us to that point in however manner he, he did. So we don't know the answer to that question, uh, which is historical. Uh, to some extent, it may be biological, but we know the fact of the first man and woman and the consequences of their own action uh, is what the Scripture teaches us. And here's sort of a related question. We can get into it. We may have to carry it over. But uh, Betsy called in from Dearborn, Michigan and couldn't hold on, and she said, if there's life outside of earth, how does Jesus fit into it? Well, remember, Jesus is not a human person. He's a divine person. He's the second person of the Trinity. And so he took to himself our human nature for the purpose of redeeming us. It could be in his will the purpose to redeem multi many, many creatures. Or as Thomas uh, admits, big day to talk about St. Thomas, uh, it's conceivable that not just a single nature might be assumed by the second person of the Trinity, but other natures as well. Uh, but any, any ensouled creature would be, by our philosophical definition, human. Uh, it would be not neither angel nor animal. And so the specific fate of those is certainly, you know, something we can't, we can't know. Uh, we can't even know that they, that they exist. Uh, so we can leave the question of, of whether they exist to whatever happens in the future, but whether or not uh, they do exist, and if they were in need of the Redeemer, no doubt the second person of the Trinity is their Redeemer, 
and we give him a name on this planet too, and that's Jesus. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Sherman in the great state of West Virginia listening on the Amazon Echo. Sherman, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, Yes, I appreciate you taking my call. I'm a converted Catholic, I guess, probably 20, 30 years ago, and mm-hmm. every day I was learning something new from y'all's program. But I, a lot of the Protestants think that Catholics worship Mary. And in saying the rosary, where we say 50 Hail Marys for each mist or rosary, mm-hmm. I was just wondering, why, how is the, why do we say so many Hail Marys? Okay. Uh, The rosary developed essentially as a substitute for the liturgy of the hours. You know, when you read in Scripture... To kind of bring that to lay people, right? To bring it to lay people. And when you read in Scripture that the the apostles continued to frequent the temple in the more at the morning and the midday and the afternoon hours... Those were uh, three of the Jewish hours of prayer and also at the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. But those were the, the sacrifices were the priestly acts and the prayer was led by the, by the Levites. We would think maybe the deacons would be a, a Catholic analogy. So the church absorbed from the Jewish ethos, from the Old Covenant, many of the liturgical views and approaches to things. Now, when in monastic like as it developed uh, among the fa- the early desert fathers in Judea as well as in Egypt, where they went off to pray, you have the development of the prayer throughout the day, uh, and it's called today the liturgy, the hours, or the divine office, or the breviary. You may hear either of those terms used and not know what they are, and that is. There is a morning prayer, there is a mid-morning prayer, a midday prayer, a mid-afternoon prayer, and then a vespers, an evening prayer. See, there's a correspondence between the, the practice of Israel and the practice of the new Israel, of the church. And that is to, to sanctify the whole day by prayer. But unfortunately for that, the monks had the, uh, the, the possibility of memorizing the Psalms, uh, having... Uh, scrolls and books such as they were at the different times in history with this material in them. Today there is the, you can buy the book from the Catholic book publishers of of the Liturgy of the Hours. And they had that advantage, but the laity were illiterate. And so the rosary was a way to sort of give them a way to pray throughout the day, 
while meditate, not only saying the prayers, but meditating on the mysteries of the life of Christ and uh, the Blessed Mother. And so you see the, the joyful mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries regarding his passion and death, and the, and the glorious mysteries regarding his glorification and the ascension and resurrection, and then also in relationship to Our Lady with the Assumption. So that was for the laity for many centuries a way to sanctify the day, and it was very fruitful uh, in helping people get closer to the Lord to uh, correct their own moral faults by comparing their lack of virtue with the virtue of Christ and his mother, and uh, so to grow in holiness throughout their lives. So it serves, has served that purpose very, very well, and so the church absolutely encourages the, the practice of the rosary. The saints have done so as well as being a very practical instrument of prayer that can be used by anyone, anywhere, without a book. Um, and so it continues to serve that practice uh, purpose today. Thanks so much, Sherman. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Heidi, a first-time caller, driving through the great state of Kansas, listening on the EWTN app. Heidi, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi there. How are you today? Oh, pretty good. What's your question, dear? Oh, good. I was talking to a family member who is non-Catholic, and they said that they believed or had heard that hell, that Catholics believe, hell is not technically open yet to receive souls, because we were talking about who could or could not be in heaven and hell, and I said I don't believe that that's (laughs) a Catholic belief, But what I wanted to drill down is get more information. Is this something that they're completely wrong about, or is it something that somebody long, long ago in the church or, you know, outside might have written about the church, or that was one of those unofficial things that people talked about? Well, there may be some Catholic somewhere who's taught that. I'm envisioning this one of those big flashing neon open signs. Yes. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of something that Fulton Sheen used to said. You know, there are not more than 20 people in the United States who, who actually believe, uh, you know, of those who say they believe that the Catholic Church teaches certain things uh, that are wrong, there are only about 20 who are actually speaking of something which the Church actually teaches. Most people's ideas of what the Church teaches are flat out wrong, and this is certainly one of them. No, the existence of hell is taught in sacred scripture by our Lord. Uh, It's taught in the book of Revelation by St. John. Uh, We see that at the end, we see references to the hell in different places created for for human being, created for the devil and his angels into which uh, human beings will be cast. So the teaching of the church has been, is, and will always be that at death, a decision, a judgment is made. This is our personal judgment by Christ. We have this in the letter to the Hebrews. It's appointed to man to die after which the judgment. That judgment takes place, and Christ is the judge. He called, referred to himself as the judge in Matthew 5 when he said, to settle with your opponent while you're on the way because the judge may throw you into the prison and you won't get out until you've paid the last debt. That's, that is a reference to purgatory. There's the other place which you never get out of, and he also spoke of that. So at death, we stand before God, inst- Christ, instantaneously, 
and he judges our life. If we die in the state of grace, in the state of charity, he will welcome us in, or he may say, you can, you can come in, but you must be purified. For, as John tells us in the book of Revelation in, about the New Jerusalem, nothing impure shall enter in. So you can be just, but have, you know, some stains on you, and those have to be clean. You go to the launderers for that. On the other hand, those who die in the state of mortal sin, there is no repentance there. We are given this time of probation on earth to make those decisions for or against Christ. And our moral choices are decisions for or against Christ. And if we die in a state which is against Christ, we shall be in that state when he sends us to hell. And that also happens immediately after death. Now, there was a time during human history when heaven was not open. Then that's true until Christ opened it at the. There, there there might be. That's what they may be thinking of. They may also be thinking of the limbo of the patriarchs. That when Christ was on earth, because heaven was not open, when his stepfather, his foster father, died, Joseph, they went to the limbo of the patriarchs. When King David died, when the prophets died, when the other righteous men and women of the old law died. They didn't go to heaven. They went into a place of waiting, a limbo, a middle place. Those who were going to hell, they went to hell. But the just had to wait for the coming of the Messiah. And you can picture the joy in this place of the patriarchs. When John the Baptist, after his martyrdom, when Joseph, actually, before that, Joseph and John the Baptist arrive and say, He is alive on the earth. Your redemption is at hand. And they had that to look forward to. And that redemption took place when he ascended to his father, taking with him this train of, of, the, of the holy gifts which, uh, of men and women who had died before and were just. How's that, Heidi? That's perfect. I will have to revisit that with him and explain maybe where he got that <laughs> different, maybe flipped it just a little bit there. Yeah. But that way I have more information, because I was pretty much 100% sure that that was not true, but it's always good to have a little bit more information, and something like this mm-hmm. kind of fills that in. Well, and you can also suggest, so, you know, the catechism doesn't cost very much. He can look in there any time at his leisure without embarrassing himself <laughs> and find out what the Church actually teaches. Thanks, Heidi. We appreciate the call. And Next. it's online. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Next up is Ahmed in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Ahmed, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, uh, thank you for calling. Um, uh, this is Ahmed. Quick question. How do we know that... Uh, that Jesus was uh, the Son of God. No. Well, he claimed it. He said to the to his uh, interrogators among the Pharisees before when they questioned him when he said Abraham saw my day and they rejoiced. How can that be? You are not yet thirty or whatever they said. The reason was simple. He said before Abraham came to be, I am. And they were livid because this was the term that nobody spoke except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. It was the only time the name of God it was pronounced. They had a lot of euphemism which they were used, Adonai and Shaddai and others, to get around the use of the divine name, which we understand today to be Yahweh, the yod heh vav heh of the, the four consonants of, of, the, of the Hebrew script. 
So those were never pronounced, and in their presence, he said, before Abraham came to be, I am. That was his own profession. The other thing was he predicted everything that happened to him, and it came to pass, and that the apostles rose, uh, are witnesses of his rising from the dead. But ultimately, yes, it still takes faith. One must believe that those apostles did not perjure themselves and that all of whom were martyrs except St. John, who they tried to boil in oil and he didn't die, that they went to their deaths willingly professing his resurrection as a perjury. That's not a reasonable uh, assumption. So you still have to have faith, and a faith is a gift we can ask from God. Lord, give me faith. If this is your will, if, if Christ is my Savior, give me the gift of faith. He wants to do it, because then the certainty will be an absolute certainty. And I think anyone who's made that conversion uh, will, will attest to the certainty of faith. Human thinking and logic and reason is all there to support it. It gets you to the door, but God must open the door. You must open the door, and God must step through it. Uh, thanks, Ahmed. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Michael is watching us on YouTube, and he says, Is it proper for a layperson to give a eulogy at Mass prior to the Liturgy of the Word? In my opinion, I don't think that it is, that it is but I need your opinion on this topic. <laughs> No, the, the time to, to uh, have somebody speak on behalf of the deceased is after communion, about in the place typically where parishes have their information, you know, what's coming, the so, announcements, yeah. uh, announcements and all of that, or, you know, confessions on uh, Ash Wednesday or something. Uh, so that's, that's the time that that is to be done. Uh, the time that the gospel and the homily are reserved for the priest who represents Christ and the church and gives us instruction based on the scriptures of the day. It's not for any other purpose, and that's been solemnly confirmed in judicial language by the Church on a number of occasions, in canon law, in the liturgical norms, and by special, uh, uh, special insistence regarding serious abuses of the liturgy. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Be sure to check out Blessed to Play Sunday afternoon at four thirty p.m. Eastern Time. This week's guest is Emily Curlett, a women's professional hockey player who played her collegiate hockey at Robert Morris University and Ohio State University. Ron uh, Ron Meyer, the host, talks with Emily about how Catholicism brought her to a deeper faith life. That's Blessed to Play Sunday afternoon, four thirty p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. Next stop for us is Dent, Ohio. Ray is in Ohio listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Ray, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. I uh, really enjoy your show, and uh beautiful day to, to be listening to you. Well, thank you. Um, my my question is is this. I, w- I was reading Song of Songs in the Bible, mm-hmm. and um, it's kind of uh, um, explicit on, on a few, few things, and I was wondering... Could you break that? What is this all about, or what? I, I, I'm really confused about it. Yeah. The Song of Songs, which has more traditionally been called the Canticle of Canticles, is taken as 
the bridegroom is Christ, the bride, uh, probably Israel in the mind of the author, certainly the church, and also by application the individual soul in their relationship with, with God and with Christ. And the be- most beautiful, uh, you can find a number of uh, expositions of the meaning of it in, in different saints. I think St. Bernard, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly St. John of the Cross, who wrote a whole book on the Canticle of Canticles. So it, that's been the traditional approach to interpreting that. Is uh, Obviously, the starting point of that is that, as the Church has, has taught, and John Paul II made a great point of this, Marriage is an analogy of the communion within the Trinity. The Trinity is not sexed, but in making man, God built into us these elements of surrender to each other that is represented at the highest level in an infinite degree by the persons of the Trinity. And so the marriage is often given in Scripture, as we know, Israel uh, God calls him his spouse. He decries its adulteries. In other words, it's going after pagan gods. In the book of Ephesians, St. Paul draws the connection with the church to the relationship of Christ and the church, the man and woman, the husband and wife. So the marital theme it runs throughout because it's a created reality. It's a reflection of uh, analogously of the love within the Trinity uh, but at the hu- in a human in a human way in an incarnate way in marriage, and so that is what it's pointing to, and that can be taken on the corporate level of Christ in the church, can be taken on the individual level of me and and Christ, uh, the prayer the person who is praying, uh, trying to uh, rise to the contemplative life, uh, and so it has many ways in which that can be understood, but they're always in those spiritual senses. Terry writes in, um, how do we talk to people who are doubting God because they don't understand suffering that they seem to be pointless? Well, that's a, that's a very high bar. To, we all face the dealing with suffering, and even Christians who uh, maybe haven't much experience of it, when they do, they may not be fully prepared for the costs of it. And it is a challenge to understand that Suffering comes from different quarters. It can come from sickness. It can come from persecution. Become come from the evils which other others commit, which creates poverty in a society or in a family. Um, and so, in all of those cases, one has to get down to the root of the providence of God, and to see in this some reflection of His providence that it can be turned to my spiritual advantage despite the crosses that it imposes on me. And, of course, Christ said, follow me, take up your cross. If you wish to follow me, you have to do that. And so that's an occasion for us to make that choice as Christians. For the non-Christians, it's a very difficult bar, a high bar to cross, because we may have the lens to understand suffering in the context of the passion of the Lord and dealing with injustice and offering it to God for correction of injustice and for the salvation of souls and so on. But the non-believer doesn't have that or the non-Christian uh, doesn't have that. So it, I guess it depends on their, their framework. Um, your approach might be different in, in, in each case, but you can certainly offer the Christian explanation uh, 
and see if it appeals to them. I have found in doing hospital visitations year ago, taking communion to the sick, that many times those who are ill and sick, who maybe are, they're Catholic, that's how I knew who to go visit, is they left their names as Catholics on the hospital's rolls, and so they were open to visitors and people bringing the blessed, bringing the Eucharist, but they still struggled with the suffering. And the cross gave them a way of analyzing and embracing uh, their own suffering. It may not do that for others, but sometimes the person in the next bed would make a positive comment regarding, oh, that's very helpful or that's very consoling. So you never know what that will be. Pray, then explain it in a Christian way, and with the grace of God, perhaps, they will be inclined to see the value of that as well. And Ryan in Pennsylvania has got a question kind of along the same lines. He's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ryan, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Uh, I guess my question kind of builds on what you're just talking about, and, mm -hmm. and that is uh, what I struggle with. Um, I guess you could call this a problem of evil. Uh, a couple that mm -hmm. I know, good friends of, of my wife and I, um, they have a child who is struggling with childhood leukemia and mm -hmm. not doing very well. And, um, you know, there's been lots of prayers and for their child, and I just, you know, how, how if petitionary prayer works, if God is listening to us, how, how do you explain the suffering of a small, innocent child like that? I'll just take your answer off mm -hmm. here. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it should be obvious that placing our needs before God always includes the disposition to his wisdom. I spoke of this with about an earlier caller. And that is, when we make these prayers, uh, the example was the, the Lorica or the breastplate of St. Patrick, that it's always subject to the will of God. We see things in a slice of time and what will be useful now. And I'm a parent. We had a child diagnosed in utero as having a very serious genetic disease. Uh, he was born with a not less serious disease. He still has very serious consequences syndrome, syndromic consequences from it. And of course, parents are always going to think of it in terms of the here and now, because that's what they're dealing with. But we always have to be open to the wisdom of God and the providence of God in these circumstances. And that is, we see what is right before us, where God sees the lives of all involved and all who are will be touched by it, and the good or whatever might come from it, we simply can't see that, where the greater good will come from. Parents necessarily see the immediate good, the life, the happy health, and the happiness of their child. But we always need to be op open to the providence of God. I like to say that in many respects, the Eucharist is an easy doctrine to believe. The Trinity is an easy doctrine to believe that God and his divine providence is the Lord of every single moment of the sparrows and the, you know, the, the flowers in the field. That's a difficult doctrine because we face that one every day. We don't often face the Trinity or the Eucharist. We sort of go about our business as Catholics, and that's a non-question to us. But the doctrine of God's providence and his divine will and his divine plans for each of us and for those who are in our custody as children are in their custody of their parents, 
That's a difficult thing, and we face it every single day, and it requires an assent to that truth of God's providence in all of these kinds of circumstances and in all crosses. Okay. You acted like you were going to add to that for a minute there. <laughs> I always leave you wondering, don't I? <laughs> Austin wants to know, why do Catholics believe that salvation comes through baptism? Well, because the Church is the instrument of God. And uh, St. Peter didn't say, okay, you said your prayer, repent, and you're all saved. He said, repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. Through baptism comes the forgiveness of sins. Through baptism then comes all the graces which are coincident with the forgiveness of sins. So the church says that the indwelling of God, the indwelling of the Trinity, which we often shorten to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Trinity, the infused moral graces, faith, hope, and charity, the theological virtues, these are given at the instant of baptism because by the presence of God they are by nature given or restored through the sacrament of penance. So, simply from the example of St. Peter on Pentecost, we know that repentance with baptism results in justification and the forgiveness of sins. There's the, there's the, you know, the nexus of all of these things, and from that the Church has drawn out all the conclusions about what actually takes place in the pouring of water and in the saying of the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip did the same thing with the Ethiopian eunuch, who understood, well, I believe, humanly, I think, what is to prevent me from oh, being look. baptized? Oh, look, water! water. <laughs> <laughs> so this is clear, that water, belief, water, and the role of the church is intimate to the justification of the individual from the evil state in which we existed before that justification. Awesome. On behalf of our host, Mr. Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology here at EWTN, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and social media assistance from Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Have a great weekend until we get together then. God bless. Oh,